0: and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at... All Indiana podcast Network.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister.
1: Thank
0: you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Barron. She is a professor. She is the Langborn M. Williams Professor of American History at the University of Virginia, and a member of the Executive Council of the University of Virginia's John L. Nau III Center for Civil War History. Worked with Gary Gallagher, I'm assuming.
1: Absolutely. He's a good friend and and colleague. And we have compared notes often.
0: I'd love to have him on the podcast. He's brilliant. He, He's really you, changed. You
1: he has, and his his sort of panoramic expertise about the war is just really unmatched. So I certainly encourage you to do that.
0: I may ask for your help. Sure. Professor Varon's awards include the twenty twenty Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize, which I've been to the Lincoln Forum. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah. Great. Very good there. events. Yep.
0: Judge Williams is wonderful. And Ruth Scolacci, who's a very good friend of mine. She's involved as well. Her new book is called Longstreet, the Confederate general who defied the South. If anyone listening is a civil war history buff, you know that Longstreet really as much as anyone has a unique history not only during the war, but perhaps even more so after the war. Professor Varen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation.
0: I've devoured this book as an unabashed Longstreet enthusiast, advocate, a lot has been written about him. I think was the last, was Jeffrey Works the last full-scale biography about...
1: There are a number of studies that focus on aspects of his life, but that's the last a synthetic biography. Yeah, and, and, and a very good book, very strong on his Civil War record.
0: Absolutely. And then one of my favorite Civil War books is uh, William Garrett Piston's Lee's Tarnished Lieutenant, which really yeah. ignited the love of Longstreet for me. So what drove you to write this book?
1: As you say, Longstreet is a fascinating character, relatively well known to American history buffs and quite well known, at least his name and the basic outlines of his story are quite well known to Civil War buffs. But I felt that there was more to say, particularly about his post-war life and its relationship to his wartime career and performance, as there's been some terrific work on Longstreet, the Piston book and book, both very admirable. At the same time, it's worth noting that Longstreet spent four years as a Confederate general and nearly 40 years as a Republican political operative after the war. And the vast majority of attention has focused on his performance as a Confederate general, and particularly two crucial days at Gettysburg, the second and third day, July 2nd and 3rd of that battle. And I felt that a deep dive on his long post-war career was was in order, in part because, of course, the wartime story and the post-war story are very much connected. And again, I think people understand the general outlines of this. There's a the general public has a vague sense that Longstreet's post-war politics his embrace of the Republican Party and of Reconstruction in 1867 produced a fierce backlash and that he got essentially disqualified as a symbol of the Confederacy and the lost cause and blamed for the Confederate defeat at Gettysburg and in the war. Um, But I wanted to tell that story in detail. And part of what motivated me is a sense that we had... Missed some opportunities in the Longstreet scholarship, Longstreet studies, if you will. There's a sort of image of Longstreet in the public mind as a kind of gruff, taciturn man of few words. But in fact, this was an incredibly voluble, prolific man who left a kind of vast body of work, if you will, in the form of this 690-page memoir that he published, countless essays in 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 magazines like Century Magazine, and countless interviews. And in all of these forums, he weighed in on these sort of crucial issues in American history, treason and loyalty, victory and defeat, and has a lot to teach us as a public figure and someone whose voice is preserved in such detail in the public record, has a lot to teach us about both the transformative changes of the Civil War era, but also the entrenched inequities of the Civil War era. So I was really interested in giving that that big Longstreet body of work all he had to say over the course of this long political career, a close a close reading so we could really tune in his voice.
0: As someone who is a Republican political operative, I'm always happy to read about other Republican political operatives. I actually have been on a spate of reading about Lyndon Johnson, which is the opposite of the other, another fabulous and thrilling topic. Piston named his book or titled his book Lee's Tarnished Lieutenant. Your book is titled The Confederate General Who Defied the South. What do you think about both of those titles and what do they tell us about Longstreet's career? It's Man of Courage.
1: I think that, uh, you know, the tarnished uh, lieutenant r- refers uh, to the backlash against the position Longstreet took during uh, Reconstruction, uh, and uh, Piston is is very strong on the—you you mentioned this in, a, in our little pre-interview conversation—very strong on the sources of that backlash, Pendleton and Early and others, and what they had to say and the way Longstreet defended himself— Uh, against his critics. But the the decision itself in 1867 to defy the Confederacy, as I put it, to embrace the Republican Party, a party which it's important to remind our our leaders, the Republican Party in Longstreet's era was the party of Lincoln, the party of anti-slavery, the party of the Union victory in the war, the party of Reconstruction, uh, a party that represented all most white Southerners loathed and feared. And so for Longstreet to embrace that party was a very big deal. I wanted to unravel that decision. I also depart from both Piston and Wirt in one key sense. I've already alluded to this when I talked about Longstreet's body of work. I think Wort and Piston and most everyone who's written about Longstreet have portrayed him as a rather inept politician, someone who got out over his skis once he he embraced Reconstruction. He misrepresented his own uh, wishes. He let himself be painted as more radical than he was. He then proved inept, uh, according to these authors, at defending his wartime record, that his own defenses were full of contradictions and misstatements and so on. And I don't quite accept that. I show in my book that Longstreet was quite a deft politician who formed a wide range of alliances, surprising alliances in the post-war period, and who did succeed to a surprising degree in rehabilitating his reputation and, and refashioning himself in the sort of last phase of his life as a kind of symbol of sectional Reunion, that rehabilitation was never a full rehabilitation because the sort of early in Pendleton types in there and those who carried on their anti-Longstreet crusade were always part of the picture. But I believe that he affected this rehabilitation because he was in some ways quite a skilled politician and quite a skilled literary antagonist in his battles with these men. Part of the argument of my book is that we should take Longstreet the politician seriously. We talked about Republican political operatives. Here's a guy who held one after another position. Uh, patronage position. The first was a surveyor of uh, customs in New Orleans bestowed on him by U.S. Grant, but but that wasn't the last. He was uh, a postmaster. He was a U.S. marshal in Georgia. He, he was the U.S. ambassador to Turkey, which is just astonishing. Appointed in 1880. Here, the Civil War is less than two decades old and a man who was second only to Robert E. Lee as a Confederate general was representing the United States abroad in an important foreign posting. He became railroad commissioner under McKinley. So again, another part of my argument is that Longstreet was a deeply committed Republican operative who kept doubling down rather than backing away from that commitment he made in, in, in 1867 and his very long career. Is a reflection of that deep commitment. So the image of him as someone who was inept and somehow allowed himself to be misrepresented and was never very good at defending himself, I think is a is a sort of mis, misapprehension.
0: Longstreet has entered the public and the historical record, public consciousness as a soldier. He was a graduate of West Point, became, I think he and Grant. And Ulysses S. Grant became friends back then, ended up marrying, I believe, each other's cousin, cousins, I should say, and then served in the Mexican War. Was not part of the quote unquote Virginia cult, if that's the right word to use, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the Virginia dynasty, which is a whole nother group of people Mm -hmm. a few decades earlier. He served, and I'm trying to get through this because we could do it. We could do 10 podcasts on the third day of Gettysburg, and I don't right, want to necessarily right, right. do that. And he was at the first battle, the Battle of Manassas, and eventually rose to become a lieutenant general serving under Robert E. Lee. He commanded the first corps, which is interesting because, and I want to ask you a quick question about this. The commander of the second corps was Stonewall Jackson, yet— yeah. Yet Jackson was ranked behind Longstreet. Right. But Jackson, right. either through some of his exploits and certainly his martyrdom, was seen as the, the beau ideal of a Confederate general for the cause. And here's Longstreet, who just seems to get hit with opprobrium after opprobrium. What was. Yeah. So to you're, you're really
1: onto something there, right? So there there is a sense in the public mind that. Lee's right-hand man was Stonewall Jackson. It was Longstreet who was second to Lee from start to finish, and Longstreet who considered himself Lee's right-hand man as his warhorse, quote-unquote, as Lee put it. As you described very nicely and succinctly, there's a kind of first phase of Longstreet's life, a sort of dramatic arc He's raised in the Deep South. His uncle is a very influential pro-slavery ideologue, so Longstreet is steeped in a sort of Southern states' rights, a secessionist pro-slavery mentality from the time he's a young man. He goes off to West Point, befriends U.S. Grant. That's going to be a very important part of his story. Down the line, he serves with distinction in the Mexican War. He embraces secession. Some Confederate generals were reluctant Confederates. They got on board only after secession was a fait accompli. But as Jeffrey Wirt has noted very rightly in his biography and sleuth this out, Longstreet embraces secession and offers his services to the Confederacy early in the game. He's not at all reluctant. He, as you say, commands the First Corps, he performs well in the Civil War for Lee and the Confederates at the Seven Days, at Second Manassas, at Antietam, at Fredericksburg. And the lesson he derives essentially from those battles is that it's advantageous to fight on the defensive on ground you have chosen and from which you can launch powerful counterattacks. So he is on the eve of Gettysburg Feels pretty secure in this reputation as Lee's right hand man uh, and the, the second most important Confederate general, second only to Lee.
0: And Fredericksburg is the battle in December of 62, where the Union Army of the Potomac just hurls itself against the Army of Northern Virginia. And that seems to be to me, where the light bulb popped on for Longstreet is, look, let's just find a great defensive position, let them hurl themselves against us, and it doesn't matter if we do it in Pennsylvania or Virginia or Maryland, and then we'll have the opportunity to counterattack. He was not at the Battle of Chancellorsville, where Thomas Stonewall Jackson lost his life, but he was famously or infamously for the rest of his life at the Battle of Gettysburg, that seems to me to be the genesis of the anti-Longstreet faction, because if only the Confederates had won that battle, they would have won the war. I personally think Gettysburg is an overrated battle. Lightning, mm-hmm. please don't strike. Yeah. But please yeah, yeah. talk right. to us about Longstreet at Gettysburg and, and what happened there regarding him because we're going to get back to it the longer our conversation goes.
1: Yeah. So Longstreet, famously or inf- famously, as you put it, believes that the plan that Lee proposes at the end of the first day of Gettysburg to attack go, the offensive the following morning, att- attacking a strong federal position on the high ground at Cemetery Ridge, he believes that this is a a problematic plan. Longstreet proposes to Lee that the Confederates dislodge from their own position on the low ground and maneuver around the federal the federal left wing, essentially, to find some better ground, high ground of their own, choosing to invite a federal attack that will, as you uh, very uh, rightly put it, echo uh, Fredericksburg, an advantageous defensive position. And Lee rejects this plan and the attack on the following day is bedeviled by all kinds of, of problems. It, it's delayed in its, in its onset, and those delays became the subject of much speculation. Had Longstreet, who was disappointed that Lee rejected his advice, had Longstreet been willfully disobedient to Lee and lacking enthusiasm, being ambivalent about that attack essentially undermined? Uh- Lee's plan. Now, my this spiraled for reasons we'll discuss as we get to the post-war period into a debate about whether Longstreet deserved all the blame for the loss of Gettysburg and all the blame for the Confederacy's loss in the Civil War. And I would argue that, yes, Longstreet felt the plan was an ill-considered one. Much of the debate turned on whether Lee and he had some kind of pact or agreement that they would fight on the defense tactical defensive in pennsylvania and longstreet believed they did and most everybody including lee believes that they didn't the point is that longstreet felt that it was uncharacteristic of lee not to heed his counsel because lee did consider him his right-hand man so longstreet was thrown uh, off by by that there are many reasons the attack on the second day Failed and indeed many reasons why the Confederates lost the battle. And students of the battle know that Jeb Stewart and Ewell and A.P. Hill and others deserve, and we included, deserve blame. But in retrospect, Longstreet's critics would argue that he was willfully disobedient on that second day. Now I would argue, and some of Longstreet's some military historians who who believe that the charges against Longstreet for military mishandling of his responsibilities are trumped up, would argue that even Longstreet's moves on the second day, the delays were undertaken in order, as he saw it, both to act in deference to Lee and to maximize the chances of Confederate success, uh, waiting for Law's brigade, taking a roundabout route to the front to avoid detection by the Federals, rejecting Hood's request for a flank attack. Longstreet felt like that all these things were authorized by Lee. And in his own accounts of the second day, what he emphasizes is his deference to Lee, not disobedience. So there's a big gap between the image of him as disobedient and his self-image is ultimately having deferred to Lee. Now, it's important to note that while he had reservations about the plan on the second day, he was really opposed to and fatalistic about the plan for the third day, Pickett's charge. That plan, he felt, was just doomed to failure because the Confederate forces, which he commanded, simply weren't large enough to to overcome uh, the, the the federal uh, position there, so he's really very discouraged by the events of 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 the third day and and disappointed by them. That said, it's important for us to note as we pivot. To the sort of the end of the war in Appomattox and the post-war period, that at the end of this battle in Gettysburg, and you alluded to this idea of Gettysburg, it's a huge turning point, that's a little bit retroactive and anachronistic sort of way of thinking about it. At the time of the battle, the Confederates spun it to describe it as a kind of a successful raid rather than a desperate defeat and at the time of the battle longstreet was not singled out by the confederate high command or administration or press as the scapegoat of the battle he simply wasn't the blame was spread around and the general confederate consensus was the lesson of this battle is we shouldn't invade the north again if we want to if we want to win the war his reputation as lee's right hand man and his war horse and the second only to lee in the uh, confederate uh, high command is intact at the end of the Battle of Gettysburg. And that 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 tells us something important, too.
0: I'm going to move on because the Gettysburg sinkhole is very we powerful. could talk
1: all day. Right. You are. Yeah,
0: I didn't. Yeah. There's no attack at dawn order. He clearly nope. pouted. He certainly yep. argued with Lee to a much greater degree than he had before, very pointedly. I've been a soldier, and he he talked about his military career and said no man alive.
1: Full disobedience and soul blame. No, there's just that. That case is, I think, not a strong one.
0: Yeah. Longstreet takes his army, his corps, goes down to Georgia, is absolutely dispositive. His actions are, and of his men, in the Union route at Chickamauga, which I think is September of 63. He has independent command, does not do very well. He is taken back, ordered back to Virginia to prepare, along with uh, the Confederate Corps, for the onslaught they know is coming in the spring of 64 by Ulysses S. Grant. Longstreet is eerily like Stonewall Jackson. Longstreet is shot by his own men. I don't know if it was on the first or second day of the Battle of the Wilderness, but it was right when the Overland campaign started in May of 64. People who say that Lee and he did not have a strong relationship have never read anything about Lee's reaction to Longstreet being shot. Please take it from there.
1: Longstreet wounded in the throat and right shoulder on May 6, 1864. His right arm was largely paralyzed. The the wound will affect his health for the rest of, of his life. And he has to sit on the sidelines for a period, recuperate. And during this sort of last phase of the war, we see some really interesting insights into Longstreet's morale and that of the Confederates and his reputation and his standing in Lee's eyes and their relationship and, and all the rest of it. Longstreet remained a sort of ardent Confederate from Manassas all the way to Appomattox. There's a bit of a of an image of him in popular culture, somewhat aloof from the Confederacy, and, and this some of his critics read back from his post-war embrace of the Republican Party and said his heart was never in it to begin with during the war and his disobedience at Gettysburg was a reflection of the fact that he wasn't all in. That's all nonsense. He was all in and he he never, and Lee knew it. Longstreet, the way I, I put it in the book is to say Longstreet never lost his belief in the Confederate cause, but he did lose confidence in it. And it's a crucial distinction. He does become Somewhat demoralized, as you said, the sort of failure of his independent command in, in 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 East Tennessee is a factor. But what mostly demoralizes him is a sort of combination of frustrations, the logistical woes of the Confederacy. He feels that his men are perennially undersupplied, and that this is because of failings uh, in the Confederate administration. The debates over tactical, poor tactical decisions, we alluded to the to to the uh, to the Gettysburg one. the the sort of failing, as he puts it in his memoir, looking back on this period, the failing of hubris or arrogance. Longstreet believes that the Confederates again and again underestimate the the Yankees and particularly underestimate Grant. And we Mm -hmm. see Longstreet really begin to brood about Confederate arrogance. And Longstreet says it's it's wrong in war to, quote unquote, despise your enemy, meaning don't underestimate them. And he says that when he's in in Tennessee in the same theater of war with Grant, he knows that Grant is going to punish the Confederates for their strategic and logistical uh, sort of failings in a way that no other Union general could. So he starts to brood about, about the problems in, in, in the Confederacy and he starts to contemplate the end of the war. Interestingly like Lee Longstreet believes that the confederacy should do anything and everything in its power to win the war including centralizing actions by the government the impressment of enslaved people and of civilian resources for example so he is he is shares Lee's kind of at all costs sort of mentality but Longstreet also again knows that Grant will make the confederates pay for what's, their the, what's the
0: quote? What, uh, Longstreet tells Lee and everybody, Grant will this, fight us. This man every will hour. fight us. Yep, every go hour until ahead. the
1: to the end of the war. You had it. <laughs> he and he's right because he knows that Grant's. He, he knows that Grant is a strategic genius, and he knows that he will fight a war of attrition. And and we have. In the sort of final act of the war at Appomattox, in a sense, really the the key to all that follows, because Grant finally, of course, does bring the Confederates to heel. He offers these incredibly lenient, magnanimous terms of surrender to Lee's army, saying, essentially, if you pledge uh, your future obedience to the U.S. and to obey its laws, you Confederate troops can go home without any reprisals. Grant, as I've explained in a different book, a book on Appomattox itself, really intended for these lenient terms to affect the repentance of the Confederates, their contrition to change hearts and minds, as we might put it when we talk about warfare, as we do when we talk about modern warfare. But of course, what Grant finds is that Confederates overwhelmingly are not repentant and not contrite, but Longstreet, this is a b- sort of beginning of his of his defiance, if you will. Longstreet really takes Grant's terms to heart and interprets them in the way Grant intended. That is to say, your magnanimity comes. Grant's magnanimity uh, means Confederates must 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 yield.
0: And there's certainly at a time when most of the confederate leaders expected to be tried for treason and hanged there was certainly a sense and a lot of it was driven by the radical republicans that vengeance should be our portion instead with lincoln and grant it was almost the opposite and the other thing and i you i think you talked about this in your book that i thought was very interesting was how the lost cause myth since we're still talking about the war and then we'll jump ahead of We weren't defeated on the battlefield and it was just overwhelming numbers by the barbarian northerners Mm -hmm. that Longstreet didn't cotton to that, that he's, I don't know what, go ahead.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. He felt that, uh, that, that the union victory was a victory of skill and prowess and That it reflected the strength and indeed, as he came to believe, really the superiority of Northern free labor society, of Northern industry, of of Northern resources. Again, in the eyes of Northerners, their superior numbers and resources were a sign of the superiority of a free labor society over a slave labor society. And Longstreet essentially took that position too, came really to embrace it. Essentially, the the lost cause view, as you've just alluded to and expressed in Lee's famous farewell address at Appomattox, was that the Union victory was a victory only of might over right. Uh, whereas Longstreet really believed, and then would uh, sort of stake this claim that the Union victory was a moral victory as well as a military victory, and that enjoined upon the defeated some effort to to yield and comply and change.
0: And we had Michael Burlingame on the Leaders and Legends podcast who talked about a lot of that in terms of the moral force behind the Union victory. And yeah. Longstreet, to your point, as you just made so well, is he accepted it and said, we got whipped on the field and the victors get to decide what happens. And so now right. all we can do is just make the best of it. And that's what I'm going to do. Cause I got a family and a wife and everyone to feed and I need to go on with my life. I was only in his forties. I think when the war ended maybe. And I want to ask very quickly, is that something where he embraced the defeat or accepted it is a better term. Yeah. Embraced the new opportunity that was presented How different and how sui generis was that, his action of him, compared to all these other high-ranking Confederate soldiers?
1: Yeah, so the question, high-ranking, is key here in, in answering this. Longstreet, once he, in 1867, has said, I will support congressional reconstruction congressional reconstruction was a congress's plan to remake the southern states to create new electorates in which uh, african american men could vote and and then interracial state governments that would they hoped to preserve and extend the the fruits of the union victory in the war Well, longstreet makes that makes that commitment in, in, in 1867 and he is faced with a massive backlash from ex-Confederates who say, you, Longstreet, are a traitor uh, to the South and a race traitor for accepting Black voting, which was the centerpiece of the congressional program. And he is ostracized by many ex-Confederates and labeled a pariah. Now, all of that is true. At the same time, we shouldn't uh, overlook the fact that he wasn't as isolated as this image of him as a pariah would make it out to be. There were other white Southerners who were willing for one reason or another to cast their lot with the Republican Party. Usually it was because they were interested in the sort of economic uh, uh, you know, redevelopment of the South, interested in profits and economic uh, modernization. Sometimes it was just because they wanted... Uh, peace, uh, white Southern Republicans are an important part of the Republicans co-governing coalition after the war. What makes Longstreet a particularly dangerous example of that in the eyes of Confederates is precisely that he's the highest ranking Confederate to take this position, that he was Lee's right-hand man and also that he's willing to go farther than a lot of those other white Southern Republicans in the ways we just described just to reject uh, some key lost cause of sort of tenets.
0: You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indianapolis-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmont Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the Milton Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is Professor Elizabeth Varon. She is the author of Longstreet, The Confederate General Who Defied the South. We talked about this just a few minutes ago, but to me, this is really key. You describe it superbly in your book, and that is, there. while there were several, because they went to West Point together or grew up together, strong friendships between Northern and Southern generals. If you've read, watched the movie Gettysburg or read The Killer Angels, That There's a few of them that are articulated, but perhaps the most famous and most impactful northern southern friendship was that between Ulysses S. Grant and James Longstreet. How much did Longstreet value Grant and how did Grant, quite frankly, take care of him?
1: Yeah, they had a very close bond and Longstreet not only appreciated Grant's magnanimous terms to the Confederates at Appomattox, but also a a sort of personal gesture. They met the day after the signing of the terms and Grant was very warm to Longstreet and something that Longstreet felt just was a great tribute to Grant's generous and gracious character. So they're quite, quite important to each other. Grant will, as you say, take care of, of Longstreet reward him for his his loyalty to the Republican Party and for the choice he makes to support congressional reconstruction with this position of surveyor, which launches Longstreet on his political career. But in Longstreet's eyes, Grant is the best available option. So here's Longstreet at the end of the war. And what he wants more than anything, you alluded to this very eloquently, is peace. His family has been battered by the war in 1862. In In one week in 1862, he lost three young children to scarlet fever. He has dealt with all kinds of disappointment over the course of the war, frustration at Confederate leadership and its his in his mind mishandling of some key logistical and strategic, tactical decision making. He has been impressed by Grant's by, by Grant's magnanimous terms. He looks around the landscape in the post-surrender South, and what does he see? He sees former Confederates who are utterly defiant, who, who concede nothing, concede no wrongdoing, are not contrite, are unrepentant, who move very quickly to try to reimpose in the South something as close as possible to slavery. Slavery is a dead letter, but they pass all kinds of prescriptive, racist laws meant to create essentially a new forced labor system in which African Americans are entrapped. He sees Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor, who was a white Southern unionist and Lincoln chose in order to build out his pro-war coalition during the war. He sees Johnson revert to type as a white Southern Democrat and, and essentially curry favor among former Confederate elites, par- pardoning them by the thousands, permitting them to re- assume control of the Southern states and therefore allowing again, those States to, to essentially reimpose something as close as possible to slavery. So where is he going to look? He wants peace. He he believes that the Republicans, that us grant and the Republicans really do desire peace. And he believes that the Southern Democrats ex-Confederates who are not only passing these punitive black codes, but also, uh, right away from the very start, engaging in waves of vicious retributive violence against former slaves, the Klan founded in 1866 before congressional reconstruction, not a response to congressional reconstruction so much as an extension of the violence that, that slavery itself had depended on. He sees this, this turmoil. Caused by this southern defiance and and anti black violence, and he decides to, get, as you put it colloquially, give the Republicans a try. That that you know, they, what's the alternative? The alternative is throwing in your lot with Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson was a volatile, you know, preening, egotistical. Drunkard. On the other hand, you have Grant, who, in, in Longstreet's mind, is a man of honor, a successful soldier, a man of grace and magnanimity. And it just seemed that to Longstreet the other choice is someone like Jefferson Davis, who is essentially refusing to to concede that that, that the Confederates should have yielded and that they again they had anything to be uh, repentant about. So so Longstreet casts his lot with Grant, believing that's the course of, of peace.
0: Longstreet held several positions as you stated in the quote unquote federal government and the patronage positions. Uh, how would you describe because I know we don't have time to go through all of his tribulations but what kind of what grade would you give him for how he performed in office?
1: So he is uh, uh, in a very important part of the New Orleans uh, Republican Party interracial, government uh, uh, in Louisiana, while uh, Congress's uh, reconstruction plan uh, is in effect. And he does a number of very surprising things in that role, which sort of belie the idea that he had, you know, made a mistaken or half-hearted commitment to the Republican Party. He's really all in on the Republicans' agenda of interracial governance during this time in New Orleans. He appoints African Americans to work in the Customs House. These are really good clerical jobs. He heads the interracial militia that's supposed to protect the state government against against ex-Confederate white supremacist groups, the so-called white leagues. He uh, associates with African-American politicians in events like a celebration of the passage of the 15th Amendment, which enfranchised Black men. He promotes the military careers of African-American men in that militia. They serve as officers and even as generals in his militia. He tries to train the militia to arm it. He leads it in a series of street battles against those, uh, again, ex-Confederate Southern Democrats who want to overthrow the Republican government. The culmination of all this is a famous battle, street battle, September 14th, 1874, a battle at Canal Street in New Orleans, in which he defends the interracial Republican coalition government of Louisiana, duly elected government against a white supremacist insurrection attempt, a coup attempt by the white leagues. He's wounded in that battle. The Republican forces are overwhelmed and the insurgents take over, although the federal army restores Republican control some days later. So he it's it's a sort of impossibly dramatic scene. You couldn't make this up if you tried. In this Liberty Place or Canal Street Battle, it's dubbed, quote unquote, Liberty Place by those who perpetrated it after the fact. In this battle, he is leading black troops against his own former Confederate soldiers, quite literally his own former Confederate soldiers in some cases. Now, so for all that, you give him high marks. Now, what happens after that is complicated. It complicates his legacy. Uh, the way I, I uh, put it is to say, if, if he died at the Battle of the Wilderness, he would have been remembered as a great Confederate hero by white Southerners. If he died at Liberty Place, you could say here was a real champion of of racial justice. But mm. he goes on to live for many more years. 1901. And the last, is it
0: 1901 he dies? 1904. 19- so
1: 1904? and in that last phase of his life, he tried, he reinvents himself again. In the last phase of his life, he remains a Republican. He remains committed to Black voting. But he is really eager in the last phase of his life to claw back some of his lost popularity among white Southerners. And so he tries to argue, he, he defends his re- his uh, wartime record against detractors who were blaming the Confederate defeat on him as as part of this backlash against his politics. He defends his wartime record, but he also reinvents himself as a kind of herald of sectional reunion, saying, I, I could see long before anyone else would that both North and South would have to yield and compromise some, make some concessions to each other if the country was ever going to be whole again. And, and he, he he sort of staked the claim that's what he represented was reconciliation and reunion. And to a, to a surprising degree, the public, certainly the Northern public, but some white Southerners too, uh, accepted that. And so we do see by the Time of his death, he is he has clawed back some of his popularity in the South, and he's a sort of national a national figure associated with this theme of reconciliation, and that re- represents a little bit of a backpedaling from the position he had taken in, in in New Orleans,
0: and the country had come together to a large degree because of the Spanish American War, where you right. had, I read, I don't know if it was an article or a book that none of the attacks, these vicious attacks, which drove Longstreet crazy, not over, not only because A, he thought they were untrue, but also because Longstreet thought that he was being attacked by much inferior men yes. and much inferior <laughs> right. generals. He,
1: he certainly did. He certainly did.
0: None of these attacks happened until after the death of Robert E. Lee, which I think is 1871.
1: 1870,
0: yeah. 1870. Yeah. Thank you very much. So we have a situation where the men, his detractors are silent until Lee is gone. Is that causation or correlation?
1: It's more a correlation. And, and we. it's true that Lee himself didn't go after Longstreet in public after the war, but Lee also very pointedly refused to support Longstreet. As Longstreet is considering publishing the letters in which he announces his support for Reconstruction, he reaches out to Lee and says, in effect, hey, it would be really great if you backed me on this. Think of the good we could do. And Lee rejects that. Lee Lee thought Grant's election was a travesty and a disaster for America. So they really part with on the subject of Grant and the Peace and Reconstruction. Lee was not on Longstreet's side at all in any of those respects. That said, it is after the death of Lee, but the key um, causation is that the attacks on Longstreet, 1872, 1873 by Early and Pendleton, come at the peak of Longstreet's power as a Republican operative in in New Orleans. That's Mm. what drives these men crazy. And Longstreet, it's a very important part of this story that I I tell in some detail in the book that that Longstreet was really shaped by the unique environment in New Orleans, where you had a very politically active Afro-Creole class, black men with Spanish and French roots in the in the in the region, some of whom had served as commissioned officers for the Union Army during the Civil War, who were very politically bold and assertive. And Longstreet really came to respect many of these men, like PBS Pinchback. And the fact that he was willing to ally with men like Pinchback to promote them, to defend them, this, this, to socialize with them, his detractors really fastened on that, on that radicalism as they saw it. And the timing of their attacks is very much keyed to Longstreet's prominence in New Orleans politics.
0: How much, let me ask it a different way, please is the fact that Longstreet was not part of the Virginia cult. Lee, Jackson, I don't know, I can't remember Beauregard, but Johnston, Joseph E. Johnston, there's so many of them, so many prominent Confederates were from Virginia, born or raised or went to school there. I've read another scholarship. That was something that was used against Longstreet. Is that fair or overrated? It was,
1: it was, it, it's a factor, but I wouldn't overplay it because the Virginians had no problem with someone like John Brown Gordon, who was not a Virginian, who was a Georgian, but he was a prominent democrat who stuck to the party line and was a lost cause maven and purveyor of of those views and a contributor to the cult of lee so it, it, it not being a virginian could could be the source of a little sort of distance or suspicion but it no by no means consigned you to pariah status it, it, that was that, so that's a it's a factor but it's not a major one the major one is longstreet's racial politics
0: we talked about and you Detailed eloquently the fight of Longstreet after the war, after he became a Republican towards this death to rehabilitate himself, if that's the right term, to reintroduce himself, save mm-hmm. his reputation. Astonishingly, he had help and he had help from his second wife who yeah. I've gotten. I've gotten two dates wrong. I'm going to try to get a third one. Longstreet's second wife is Helen. I think that's correct.
1: Mm-hmm. Helen Dorf she, Longstreet.
0: She lived till 1962.
1: Yeah, that is uh, just absolutely stunning. That's right. He marries a woman who is 40 odd years younger than he is in 1897. And it's a it's a strange kind of partnership, but a partnership it is. She was a journalist and a a sort of politico uh, in her own right. Uh, And she wrote a book right after his death that sought to vindicate him and defend him against the sort of Lee worshippers and the sort of Virginia detractors of Longstreet. And somebody ought to write this book. This was beyond the scope of my book, but I hope someone will come along and write a Helen Dorch Longstreet biography because she has her own kind of unbelievable political conversion during the World War II era. At the time that they marry, she's she's. Fairly steeped in certain elements of the lost cause. She's not particularly sympathetic to a- a- African-Americans, uh, doesn't sh- really share Longstreet's uh, racial politics, is a, a, a sort of a person who's inclined to glorify the Confederacy and uh, could defend it post facto and is very admiring of Longstreet's record as a Confederate general and again seeks to vindicate him against those Confederates who charged that he was not. A great military leader. But uh, around the time of the Second World War, she embraces the civil rights movement. I myself didn't get to the bottom of that story, but I hope someone will will explain her own journey, which is fascinating. So he marries someone who it turns out is a maverick in her own right, which is just, just fascinating.
0: If you could conjure old Pete and ask him one question, Which question would you ask him?
1: I really would ask him to. To explain his relationship to the Republican Party and not just at the moment of his embrace of it, but to. Assess what the party stood for and what it achieved. Maybe that's the best way to put it. What did the Republican Party stand for and what did it achieve in your mind? And I say that because I said he was prolific and voluble. He kept writing and publishing stuff right up until he died, <laughs> and evidently he wrote a manuscript about the history of the Republican Party that that he, he tried to pitch to publishers. It does. There's no surviving record of it, but when I learned that, I was like, "Oh, what I wouldn't do to to read that <laughs> to read that manuscript." We can again. He, he's a political maverick. He defies expectations. It's always hard, difficult for historians to explain why people. Uh, depart from what's expected. I've explained it as best I can, but I would love to hear in his own words what he thought that party during this period stood for and achieved. There there are really intense debates in the present day about the history of the Republican Party and what, how committed it was to reform and to abolitionism and 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 all the rest. And I, I, I would just love to hear him weigh in on this. In part because, as I've said, he was a quite informed and savvy politico, and I think he'd have really interesting things to tell us.
0: Perhaps Twitter would not be his friend, like <laughs> yeah, other yeah. folks we may have heard of. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Professor Varen, are you ready?
1: I think so. I wish I'd listened to some previous episodes and knew what was coming. But <laughs> These are far easier than
0: any of the questions you ask right. in your class. All right, uh, sure thing. What was your first job?
1: My first job was working at a movie theater in Fairfax, Virginia, where I grew up selling popcorn and so on. And I learned that. When people really want their popcorn, sometimes they're a little testy and not that nice. So I, I that was a, that was a, <laughs> an interesting experience. And it finished me with popcorn for the rest of my life.
0: Fair Fox is a beautiful town. Yeah. Uh, number two, what was your first concert?
1: My first concert. That's a great question. First ever, uh, Uh, probably John Denver or something like that. I'm nearly 60 years old, and the the first concert would have been one my parents were willing to take me to. And so it was probably John Denver.
0: Number three, this is a little tougher, perhaps. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend?
1: This is not a very creative answer, but I would say James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom. I think it's still the best single book on the Civil War and the way that he integrates the military and political and intellectual history so that you understand not only what's happening on the battlefield, but the ideas that were at stake, I think, is really uh, admirable.
0: Not the age of Eisenhower?
1: Uh, That's a good one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you'll have to talk to my husband at some point. But yeah, that's a good one too. But I would say, McPherson, I hope people are still reading his book in as great numbers as they, they have in the past.
0: It was my textbook for a 300 yeah. level Civil War class. It's just terrific. It's Number just four, this will sting you. If you yep. could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose?
1: Oh, that's really a tough one, isn't it? I think I would have to say the Gettysburg Address. It, uh, just seeing pictures in which we can barely make out Lincoln's head in the crowd gives me chills. So I think that that knowing what was to come and how those words would continue to resonate. This was a tough one for me because I watching the Allman Brothers play at the Fillmore or, or something mm. like that would be, or the, <laughs> the, the band at the Last Waltz or something, those, those are contenders. But I think probably the Gettysburg Address.
0: It would be interesting to, to hear him. His cadence.
1: Yeah, exactly. People have described it and used every imaginable source to try to recreate a sense of his kind of surprisingly high-pitched voice and this and that. But he was such a mesmerizing speaker. I would have loved to, even for those few minutes and 272 words or whatever, to have been there.
0: Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record to chat about anything you want, whom would you choose?
1: This is partly in jest, but it's also just giving the listeners a little window into my 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 side hustle. I'm a I'm an extremely avid electric guitar player, and so oh. I, I would yeah I would a serious answer I'd have to ponder some because there's so many important people, politicians and historians and intellectuals and so on I'd have to consider. But the first name that sprang to mind was Derek Trucks, who's the greatest slide guitar player in the world. So <laughs> I'll just I'll just leave you with that sort of half answer
0: you have been listening to leaders and legends a podcast presented by veteran strategies and indiana-based public relations enterprise sponsored by garmon construction leaders and legends llc the grand hall and conference center at historic union station the mcginley's golden ace Inn, and nfl P, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P. E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Elizabeth Varon, author of *Longstreet: The Confederate General Who Defied the South*. It is a terrific book about one of the most important people in American history, in my view, a terrific general and a fellow who just seems to me to embody the word courage. You captured it all very well. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at Strategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com